Good morning, Mission View Church. Did you sing that last song as a prayer? Because that song is right from Psalm 63, and if you sang it as a prayer, it, it really is a reflection of our heart to draw close to God, and that's our mission as a church is that we want to see disciples made that have an intimacy with God. We want people to be drawn near. We want you to have community. We want you to have influence, but it starts with that intimate relationship with God. And we've been going through a journey uh, this fall through 1 Peter that's all about faith. And that song is basically saying that this life is a dry and weary land. We are going to go through those difficulties, but this is not the end of it all. Our source of encouragement is God. Now, I want to review, since we're about halfway through 1 Peter, a little bit of where we've come from so far. So far, really what we've seen is that faith is about transformation. Faith is about transformation of individuals that become Christ's followers. In chapter 1, Peter talked about how God has blessed us in an abundant and an incredible way. And he blessed us primarily with salvation that has totally changed the course of our life. And because of our belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God starts doing an inward metamorphosis of our life. He takes us from being this self-absorbed individual, and we still have that tendency, but we've been crucified with Christ, but our flesh still wants to live for itself. But all of a sudden, God says, I've taken you from that to being holy. It says that in chapter 1. Evan preached that passage about how we are holy before him. God's created that. He has taken us and he has given us new passions. Before we only had a passion to live for ourselves, but now we have a passion to please God. We want to do things for him. Before we had a previous owner, and that was sin and Satan. We were under the bondage of sin and Satan. But it says that in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are now Christ's belonging. We belong to him. We are his possession. We are his jewel, the jewel in his crown. We are uh, precious to him. We are chosen. And not only that, but before, we only lived to do good for ourselves, didn't we? But when Christ transformed us, all of a sudden we desire to do good for other people. Even our enemies, even the government, even our bosses, even our spouses that might be unbelieving, we want to do good. And so that's what Peter's been talking about is transformation. Now today, Peter is going to take us into the realm of reality in the sense that we will suffer through this life. He's had a very positive message, and believe it or not, he even has a positive message in the midst of suffering. Now, I'm going to encourage you to do something. If you're not normally a note taker, I want to encourage you to take notes because some of the verses that Peter is going to give us today, they're not the easiest. In fact, some of the, some of the verses are the most complicated in all of the New Testament. So we're going to work through that together. We'll take it in bite-sized pieces, I promise you but you need to track along with me. But what Peter's going to do is he is going to help us understand that we are going to suffer in this life. And when we suffer in this life, 
What we're to do is not to be passive. We're not to be a mat that's trampled upon. What he wants us to do is he wants us to engage. He wants us to be on the offense. He wants us to present a defense. And he wants us to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I want you to know that what Peter is giving here is contrary to the society that they were living in. They were living in a society that was filled with violence. Their friends were being murdered. There was political unrest. There was nation rising up against nation. And this is the cause in which they would have this persecution. Kind of sounds like our world today, right? Political unrest, nation rising up against nation. So we can rip this. It's almost like this is ripped out of the headlines and God is giving counsel to what is going on in our world right now. So this is practical stuff. But what Peter is going to say is, I don't want you to be passive. You are to present a defense, but you are to do it with gentleness and respect. Very different from how the world religions then and even now are promoted. Do you realize now we have world religions that are promoting themselves through violence? We know that. We see Islam advancing. Why or how? We're seeing it in Paris where they're killing people. They're motivating people by fear. We see that all throughout the Middle East. But it's not just Islam. We see it also in Hinduism. We see in northern India, we see the persecution to believers is an unbelievable amount. That, that's happening. There is violence behind religious beliefs. But realize also within our own history of what is called Christianity. Now, I wouldn't say it's Christianity, but it's been labeled as Christianity. We've had our own violence. Back in 1095, do you remember what happened? It was called the Crusades. Pope Urban II, he gave a mandate. He said, if you would rise up and go and kill Muslims, I will do three things for you. Your sins will be forgiven. You will not have to pay taxes, and you will be, have a guarantee of eternity in heaven. Kind of sounds like strapping on a bomb and saying, if you go and kill people for the name of Allah, you will have uh, eternity with 70 perpetual virgins. Not much difference. That was in our own history. And what we saw there was the, the bloodiest, most horrendous misrepresentation of Christ in our history where people were going and killing in the name of Christ. The problem is, it's nowhere here. God doesn't say that we should do that. What he says is that we go and we advance the cause of Christ out of love because we have a message that transforms individuals. And so what Peter's doing is he's writing here in the midst of this environment, this is how I want you to act. This is what I want you to do. I want you to suffer for doing what is right. And so when we get into this passage, the first part, Peter's going to give a principle. And the principle is this. We as believers, as Christians, we suffer for doing what's right. Not for what's wrong. If you break the law and you go to jail, you deserve that. That's not suffering. We suffer for doing what is right when you've done nothing wrong and you suffer. That's commendable. And then he's going to give us three examples. He's going to talk about Christ as an example, Noah as an example, and baptism as an example. 
So we're going to look at that today. Let's pray that God would help us to be attentive today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, help us to be attentive to what your spirit wants to teach us today. I pray, Father, that we would be learners. Lord, help us to have a hunger for you, not just to go through the motions of church, but that we would come here as learners, that we would want to open your word and not to hear from a man, but to hear from your spirit that is speaking through the man. I pray that you would use your word, that you would convict our hearts, that you would motivate our hearts, encourage our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would do something special in each and every one of us. Help us to draw close to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's start off with the righteous principle. The righteous principle is that we suffer for what is right. Take a look at verse 13. That's where we're going to start. And what he does, Peter starts off with a rhetorical question. It's not to get an answer. It's to get you to, for someone to speak an answer, but for you to think about what is the answer to this question. And he starts off with this very question, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, remember, we'll stop right there. Remember, he just got done teaching that we're to do good for people that are opposing us, our enemies, our bosses, our government, even our spouses. And ironically, these were some of the very people that were bringing affliction on these believers. And so he says this. He says, I want you uh, now. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what's good? See, the question is really a statement. The question is, no real harm will come to those that belong to Christ. Then furthermore, in verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now think about that. At first glance, there seems to be something there that defies human logic. If we suffer for what's right, we will be blessed. It's almost as if we could say, oh, good, I get to suffer for doing what's right. Oh, man, that's an awesome thing. The key to understanding this passage is the word blessed. The word blessed doesn't mean delightful feelings. It means a high privilege. It's a high privilege when we suffer. Now, I know that you and I don't suffer as we were praying for the persecuted believers around the world. We're not being crucified. We're not having our heads chopped off. We're not having those things happen to us. But there is a form of oppression that the enemy has in the United States, and you better believe it is real. And there is a principle here that we have to hold on to. Church, we need to hear this. Why? Why do we need to apply this? Because we look at the agenda of the world, and we begin to fret, we get to be, be, we become anxious. And I've even heard many people say, man, I don't know if I can bring children in this world. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever, if you're a grandparent, thought, you know, I want to be a grandpa. I want to be a grandma. But I, I don't know about this world that we live in. We all think that. And the reason we think that is that there is an agenda that's going on. There is an enemy that wants to take everything that God says is wrong and wants to make it right in our society. There is an all-out attack against the values of what Christ 
holds to that's dear. Let me give you an example of this. Have you seen this? Dun, 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 dun. Cooper, I am your father. No, no, no. I am your father. <laughs> That's got to be the worst Vader ever. <laughs> Campbell's Star Wars Soups. How about you be Chewbacca? <laughs> Made for real, real life. Warm soup. Families gathering around. Do you see it? It's all around us. See, here's the deal. Our society, the world, the enemy wants to see homosexual marriage as a normative thing. Our world, it's not just that area. That's just an example. You're going to see more movies that are going to come out that are going to say transgender th issues. That's all a normal part of life. You have the choice of choosing whatever gender that you want to be. We've had it for years that sex out of marriage is seen as a normative thing and the list goes on and on and on. And we look at this and as Christians we become outraged. Some of us, we don't know how to respond. Some of us become political activists on Facebook and we give all of our views there. And I don't think that's necessarily wise. Some of us call for prayer meetings so that we can pray for the desperate needs of this world and we're anxious about it. And there are some of us that just have grown up with all this stuff, it doesn't phase you anymore. So how do we respond when there is an oppression against who we are as a Christian, who we are in terms of what we value? Peter gives us four things. One thing that we should not do and three things that we should do in understanding this principle. Number one, that we should not do. We should not have fear or be in trouble or be troubled. That's what it says in verse 14. Notice what it says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, how can Peter say this? There's a world of chaos all around him, just as there is in our day. How can he say there's no fear, there's no trouble? Because he realizes that the God that we hold to, the God that we serve, is far greater than all the evil combined in this world. Do you believe that, dear friends? Do you believe that we have a big God? Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 10, he said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. They can all they can do is merely kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul, both the soul and the body in hell. My friends, there are those that are going to promote an agenda that someday will have to give an account for the very maker of their souls. Do you realize that God is bigger? Do you remember when you were a kid in elementary school? And on that playground, did you have the school bully? Now, Bob, you probably were that school bully way back then. But, yeah... And, and, and so that school bully, for some reason, he had less fear than everybody else, so he became the boss of everybody. And he was, for me, it was Scott King, man. Scott King, I don't even know who, where he exists today, but in sixth grade, he, or I was in fifth grade, he was in sixth grade, man. He was the boss of the school. I stayed away from Scott King because I didn't want to get picked on. I didn't want to be made fun of. And so that was my, that was the boss of the school. But he's the boss until a bigger boss comes around. 
if he's picking on kids and the teacher comes around and he gets Scott King by the ear and drags him off to the principal's office or big brother from home comes and mounts, stands up against uh, Scott King, all of a sudden Scott King becomes mush. Do you realize that big brother is your God and he stands with us, he is in us and he causes us so that we have no fear and no trouble. Here's the second thing that we are to do. We are to honor Christ in your hearts as Lord. This is God's defensive plan for you. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as, the, as Lord, or Christ the Lord as holy. Now this statement is showing inner fortitude. It is acknowledging the superiority of God, and it's a continuation of this idea that God is big. Look at the words that he uses. He says, set in your heart, uh, uh, but in your hearts honor Christ. The word for Christ means Messiah. This is the anointed one. The Lord is meaning the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. So you're getting the picture that he's saying, set aside, realize he's the anointed one. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. You are to set him aside as the Holy One in, the, in your life. He is the one that you revere. He's the one that you respect. Now here's the principle. Big God, big God, little problem. But many of us invert that and we say, big problems, big problems, little God. What's your perspective today? How are we to handle this life? See, I'm speaking to some people that need to trust God as a big God in regards to your marriage. I'm speaking to some that need to trust God in regards to relationships within your family or in the workplace. Some of you need to trust God to help you personally get through that addiction or through that personal struggle that you have been doing it alone by. You need men of iron men or women. You need the what-if tables. You need to be able to have someone to come alongside of you. We can't do it alone. But do you realize that God is bigger than all of our problems? Now, the third thing he says, and this is God's offensive plan, it is do be prepared to give an answer, to give an answer for your hope. Look at verse 15. Always being prepared, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, the phrase to make a defense was used in a court of law to take, meaning to take off the charges that were set against us. In other words, God expects us to step up to the plate and to verbally give a defense. What God doesn't want is he doesn't want us to be passive. For those of you that think that your faith is to be a private thing, you're wrong. This is what it, this is saying. The scriptures is saying that we are to make a defense. We're not to sit back passive. We're not just to listen to error. The only caveat that God says is I want you to do it with gentleness and respect. Some of us want to get in an argument. Some of us like that. Most of us probably don't like that. But he says I want you to do it with gentleness and respect. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying I want every single one of you to be a great apologist. 
I want you to be the next Josh McDowell. I want you to be the Lee Strobel. I want you to be the Robbie Zacharias who could really defend their faith. No, no, no. He's not saying that. He's saying he wants us to give an account. He wants us to be able to set in order what is in error that's spoken in error. Do you realize that this world is spiritually confused? Very few people really have it in their mind, an argument against Christianity. According to the latest uh, Pew, uh, Pew, uh, Pew poll, um, 3% of society, of American society, are atheists. 5% are considered agnostic. So that's probably 8%. Let's just remove the 8% of society. Do you realize that leaves a whole heap of people that really don't know which way is up and they're just picking and choosing and getting a kind of a hodgepodge of beliefs and they are all screwed up in terms of what they actually believe in and they don't know the truth and they don't have someone in which to uh, balance those answers or those questions that are going through their mind. A couple weeks ago, a young lady that we have never seen before came into our office. Now, we are in the Hoover District, so we have people coming in all of the time. But this young lady, she didn't come in and say, hey, my name is. She didn't make any announcement. She just came to the front desk. Tyler Sutton was there and Sarah Mass was there. And she just said one thing. She goes, I got a question for you. Is homosexuality a sin of the body or a sin of the soul? And the girls are like, uh, hello, nice to meet you. <laughs> so they're like, where did this come from? They started to engage with a conversation with her, and they said, you know what? I think this would be a great question for Pastor Steve to answer. So they introduced her to me. She came into my office, and first thing she said when she sat down, she goes, I want you to know I love men and I love women but I really need to know the answer to this question. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, let's, I'm not afraid of that question. That's cool. I said, but let me ask you something. What's your name? <laughs> so she gave me her name, and I said, tell me a little bit about you. I'm curious. I want to know about you. So she started sharing her story, and I started sharing my story. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God started bringing back scriptures that I have memorized or I have reviewed in the past, things that I have long forgotten, at least I thought I did. All of a sudden, I'm able to speak them. That, that's because the Spirit of God is doing that. I want you to know that it's a supernatural power that God only gives pastors. <laughs> now, you know that's not true. He gives it to all believers because the Spirit of God is living within us. And you know what? We never actually got to that question because when we finally got to the gospel and we started talking about the good news of Christ, she wanted to know more about that. And in the end, she didn't give her life to Christ. I wish I could give you a happy ending, but she's in process. But I did get a chance to pray with her. I gave her a Bible. I said, my door is open to you. She has come back once since. The story's not over yet. And so she's in process. What's the point of all of this? The point is this, that God, we don't have to go looking for trouble. But what God wants is for us to be able to be diligent, missional individuals that are in the Word of God. God's not going to bring back to your memory if you haven't read this. 
start reading the Bible. But he will use your simple testimony. Even if you are a brand new believer in the book of John, the person that was blind that could see, he said, this is one thing I know. Before I was blind, but now I can see. You at least have that kind of testimony. But here's the point. God wants us to be on the offense, which means that we have to be in close proximity with those that are that those are far from God. Sometimes we like to get away from those that are far from God, and God says, no, live missionally so you can give an answer. Now, here's the final thing that Peter tells us we should do. He says, you are to have a good conscience when you are slandered. Take a look at verse 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now these verses tell us the power of the depth of character that we are to have that drives our witness. We are to be a people of good conscience. Now this doesn't mean that everybody's going to understand you. Everybody's not going to understand you in the workplace. They're not going to understand you in every place, in every segment of society that you go. There are going to be people that will actually oppose you. They will hate what you represent. They will immediately, without even knowing you, say, oh, when they understand or get the sense that you are a believer, they will say, see you as an enemy because they think that you hate all gay people or that you hate uh, global warming or you hate all these different things that they might say are holding dear. And I'm not saying that any of, I'm saying that we have to have a different approach. And what he is saying here is that you are to have such impeccable quality about you that people will not be able to have an accusation against you. Now, I'm going to make a, an observation from politics. Do you realize politics is going on right now? Has anybody heard anything from the Republicans lately? Now, I just, this is an endorsement. It's just an observation. Recently, Donald Trump made an accusation. When isn't he not making something? But he made an accusation against Dr. Carson. He called him a pathologically violent person. Of course, he was taking excerpts out of his book and of, of his testimony of how he was a violent person when he was a teenager, but then he met Christ. And Christ transformed his life. And Donald Trump's statement is, nobody who's pathological can change. It's impossible for him to change. Well, Donald doesn't understand the mind of Christ. He doesn't understand how God takes a person like Paul, who was a murderer, and turns him into a man of God who wrote the majority of the New Testament. God is a God of transformation. People aren't going to understand that, but what they do need to see is the depth of your character. And what I find interesting is that most people saw through that, and Dr. Carson was not put to shame, as this passage talks about, because people could see his character. Do people see our character in Christ? Well, that's the principle that Peter wants us to understand. Now let's look at the examples. 
There are three examples, Christ, Noah, and baptism. Now, Christ is very understandable. Noah and baptism, we're going to have to dig into a little bit. So this is where I encourage you to really take notes and think this through. And we'll think it, you can continue to think it through after this service. The example of Christ is in verse 18. He says this. This is a great verse to memorize, by the way. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In this verse, Peter gives us the shortest, simplest summary of the gospel. Very simply, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life that provoked the hostility of evil men, but needless to say, he did not fear these evil men, but he entrusted himself to God. And so he is an example of someone who ultimately suffered for doing what is right. But the passage tells us what his reward was. His reward was you and me in order for him to bring us to God. In order for him to do that, he had to shed his blood on the cross because we were rejected. We were distant. We were unholy. And he needed his blood to cover us when we gave our life to him for us to be seen holy so he could draw us close to God. So this is what Christ did as the example. Now, it's interesting some words that he uses here. In the NIV, it says he died once for all. The Jews would automatically think of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament repeatedly, repeatedly, animal after animal. But now Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. But it also says the righteous for the unrighteous. In theology, this is called the substitutionary atonement of God. This is his plan that he had planned way back in the Old Testament to do. What's substitutionary atonement of God? What's that fancy phrase mean? It simply means he took your place. You see, on the day that he was crucified, it should have been you. The person that should have been whipped the person that should have been beaten, the person that should have had nails go into his hands should have been you and it should have been me. We deserve that. But before that could happen, it was as if Jesus came in, he took our hand, he put us to the side and he said, I will do this for you. And he went down, he took the whip, he took the beatings, he took the nails for you and for me. That's the substitutionary atonement. So why would he do that? Because he was given the ultimate example of suffering for the ultimate right. And that was so that he could bring salvation to mankind so that he could do it because he loves you. He loves me. What an awesome thing that Christ has done. What an incredible example for suffering for doing what is right. Well, then we move on to the next example, and that is the example of Noah. Follow with me, verse 19 and 20. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patient, patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Now the phrase in which he is connected to the last phrase in verse 18 talking about Jesus being made alive in the spirit. What Peter is doing is he is giving the, the, what happened between the death of Christ and his physical resurrection. Him being made alive in the spirit is what happened in between. He hasn't physically raised that would happen on day three. Day one, he died. And so what happened in between? Well, Jesus in his spirit went and preached to the spirits in prison. So this raises two questions. Who in the world are these spirits? And what was the message that Jesus proclaimed to them? So let's answer that. First of all, the word spirit spoken of here is talking about not human spirits, but angelic spirits. Now, there's debate in, in theology about this, but here's why I come to this conclusion. Nowhere else in the, in the scriptures, in terms of in the spirit or the spirits, was it used in relationship to humans. The majority, if not all the times, was used in regards to angelic beings. And so Peter is talking about, he goes and speaks to angelic beings that were in prison. Here's the second proof I have. This obviously was on Peter's mind for some time, and it's in connection with Noah. It was on Peter's mind because when he writes years later, 2 Peter, in chapter 2, he brings up the topic again. This is what he says in 2 Peter. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in a gloomy dungeon to be held for judgment. And then the passage goes on and says that these were the spirits or the angels that existed during the days of Noah when Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, some of us are like, man, I never knew this before. Jesus went and preached to these angels that were all during the time of Noah. Where did these angels come from? Well, later this week, let me encourage you to do some more homework. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 6 this week and read the context in which the flood took place. You will see in the first four verses that there was angelic beings that came down and cohabitated. It was the sons of God, angelic beings, a term for that, came down and cohabitated with the women of men. What women that came from men. So the, the, uh, so we have procreation that takes place. Now you say, oh, I didn't think angels could procreate. Jesus said that they could not, angels in heaven could not procreate. But in this dispensation, in this time period, evidently angels were able to do that. I believe the flood marked the end to that being able to happen. And if you read there, it, they developed their own race of people called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were a wicked people. And it says that the people of the land were wicked. And this is the environment in which Noah, God brings up Noah, who's the only righteous man in that day. And he says, I am grieved that I've made the earth. I am going to destroy it completely. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth. So why was this, what, what was this angel-human plot all about? Dr. Kenneth Weiss in one of my theology books says this. He says, the probable purpose of the angelic apostasy so far as Satan was concerned 
now get this, was, to was the derangement of the divine plan of the incarnate and substitutionary atonement of the Son of God. For if his purpose, Satan's purpose, had succeeded, God would not have incarnated himself in a race that was part angel and part man. Do you get that? So here we see the opposition of God's future plan of redemption all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. God has this plan for redemption. So Satan wants to foil whatever God's plan was by having Satan develop a new race of people in which it was impossible for the Spirit of Christ to go live in those individuals. And thus it would nullify anything that God would be able to do. And so this was the plot of the enemy. And so what God says, I will destroy the earth. I will destroy the earth. Now some of you are looking at me like, I've never heard that before in my life. Read it. It's there. It may seem a little crazy, but it is there in the word. Now what is the message that he proclaimed? The word proclaim is not the word for evangelize, because evangelism means to proclaim the good news. This word means to make an announcement of victory. Jesus made an announcement of victory to these angels that were confined in this dungeon that God's plan of redemption had conquered. It was greater than the plans of the enemy to foil God's plans. And it, Jesus was victorious. God was victorious. Now in Genesis chapter 4, it does identify these people as Nephilim, and they had become a part of those people. Now our passage says that all of this happened because they, talking about the Nephilim, talking about the evil people, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. I think it's worth mentioning that the people of, day, the, of, of Noah's day, they were exceedingly wicked. And so they thought it was absolutely crazy that God was, or Manoah was building this boat. Do you realize it took 120 years for him to build this boat? And this tells you something about God. God is patient, and he wants all to come to repentance. And while Noah is building this boat that they, there's a monstrosity in the land, they don't understand. It's not any, anywhere near water. They can't understand why he would be building this boat. But Second Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. Do you think he had a collective audience? Do you think the sideshow was Noah in that day? Hey, let's go watch that nut building that boat. And so he's building the boat. And as he's building the boat, he's proclaiming what God is going to do. And he's saying, God, you gotta, you got to come to the boat to be saved. You have to be in this. This is going to be your only vehicle. You need to turn to God. You need to repent of your sin. He was a preacher of righteousness. What an example for us of somebody who suffered by the hands of these people for what was right. Friends, we should be claiming Christ as we build our boats, as we do our work, as we do our banking, as we do our jobs. We are, we are preachers of righteousness. But it says in the passage only eight, basically Noah's family, went into this boat. Only eight were saved in the vehicle of this boat. Now, talk about patience during affliction. Now, did you get all that? 
Let's continue on. The last example is the example of baptism. Take a look at verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of the dirt from the body, but as, and underscore this, an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? Through the resurrection of Christ. He's finally getting to the resurrection of Christ. We have the death of Christ in between the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. In a minute, we'll get to the ascension of Christ. He says this. He says, you are to appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, as if it wasn't complicated enough, we have this passage. So are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, everybody with me? Good. Peter now is connecting Noah's family being saved through the ark with baptism being a vehicle of salvation. Now, the baptism that Peter is talking about is water baptism because the boat was in water. And when believers were baptized, as we saw last week, they went into the water. But uh, Peter is very clear, careful to say that baptism, the act of water going over you, isn't what saves you. That's why he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning the passing of water over the body doesn't save a person. So what does save a person? It's the inward faith as, an evident, as evidence as one appealing to God for the forgiveness of their sins. Because that's what creates a clean conscience, right? When we appeal to God and we say, God, forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's what gives us a good conscience. Furthermore, this salvation is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. Now get this. Baptism is a visual representation that believers are clothed with Christ and thus we share in the victory of Christ. Friends, baptism is a symbol of victory over our arch enemy, the devil, and our arch enemy, the sin, that held us in bondage. And it is a proclamation of victory. And this is why Jesus makes it mandatory. Anybody, anybody that's going to say that they are a Christ follower, I want them to understand that what is all wrapped up in the symbol of baptism is a sign of the victory of God over the forces of evil, over the angelic beings. I am victorious. I am Lord of lords and I am king of kings. And when you go into the water and you come out of the water, you are proclaiming that, yes, I am united. It's because of what Christ did for us that we can do something like that. Wow, what an awesome picture. Do you realize what a picture of victory this is. Here's my question. Have you boldly proclaimed that victory by being baptized? I want you to know we're going to have another baptism soon. We're going to have another baptism soon, and I want to really encourage you, if you have not been associated with Christ in that, if you were baptized as an infant, I want you to know it doesn't count. It didn't count for me because I was baptized as a child. You didn't know what was going on. Baptism is a believer's baptism that says transformation has taken place in my life. Now Peter ends with the ascension. He's gone from the death, what happened in between the death, the resurrection associated with baptism, and now the ascension. And he says this in verse 22. 
Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The ascension of Christ to heaven puts Christ in his rightful place as Lord of lords and King of kings after he has defeated death here on earth. And in this position, he has authority over all angels. He has, position, he has authority over all, all forms of authority, whether earthly or heavenly. He has uh, authority over all powers that exist in this world. And so if that is the case, then we got to ask ourselves, does he have authority in my life? Have I yielded to him? He has done all of this for us. And what's cool is for the believer, Paul says this in Ephesians. He says this. He says, and God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. He states it in past tense because he has such certainty that it will happen. He states it as if it's already taken place. You will spend eternity with God. It's not a question mark. It's not a, it's not a maybe or possibly. It is this is our future. This life is a desert. This life is a battleground. But that life, we have eternity with him. So what does that do for us? It means that we are to be principled people who suffer for doing what's right. Some of us wonder about church. We wonder about how should I be involved in church, or is this church the right church, or that church, or that church, or that church. My friends, it's important that we are a part of the body of Christ that is going to proclaim the, the, the truth of Christ. Some of us wonder about just our salvation. Am I saved or am I not saved? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you yielded fully to him? Have you been baptized? See, these are the things that God wants to do in your life. In the past, he died for you. But is it a present reality for you? Have you experienced that victory? In the present, he wants you to identify with him through baptism. He wants you to identify with him by living as a good, in a good conscience every single day. Do we have a good conscience about our generosity? Do we have a good conscience about living, loving other people sincerely? Do we have a good conscience about forgiving other people? Do we have a good conscience about forgiving ourselves? And in the future, he wants us to live with him for eternity. Do you have that absolute certainty? I'd like to pray with you right now. If you close your eyes and bow your heads, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're about to sing a song about you're always our refuge, you're always our strength. But Lord, I want our hearts to be able to respond to you. There's someone here that has an uncertainty about their future. I'd like to pray for you. And if you just raise your hand, I'd like to pray for you that you would have a complete certainty of your salvation. Is there anybody that I can pray for? Lord, you see our hearts. You see hands. I pray, Father, that you would give us that certainty. Lord, help us to not doubt you. Help us to live that victory. 
Help us to realize that you are always, always with us. And you have done so much for us. Help us to embrace that. Help us to praise it. Help us to really hold on to you with all of our hearts. Pray that in Christ's name.